Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. Indeed, thank you for reading the scripture for us this morning. If you're like me, this has been a heavy week for you, and uh, I'm glad there are still things that are able to put a smile on our face, but I think it's right for us to feel together a bit of the heaviness that has settled on all of us. And if you're like me, this whole week has just been filled with thoughts and feelings, images and words about topics of race and injustice. And I knew right away that I needed to address that in the message this morning. At first, I thought I would have to leave the book of Psalms to do that. But then I came across Psalm 146, and I really feel that this is the the word that God has for us this morning, and it's going to be the jumping-off point for a message I like to give you. And the title of the message is, He Gives Justice. He Gives Justice. I'm going to interact a little bit with Psalm 146, but mostly I'm going to key in on one verse, and that is verse 7. We're a nation that's really hurting right now, and it seems like it's just been one thing after another. You know, Just as we were getting used to the shelter in place and this quarantine from, from COVID-19, and we, some of us could maybe just see the, the pinprick of light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, you know, summer had come, and we were ready to emerge. And then all of this stuff just blew up, and um, we're confronted again with the unresolved issues of racial inequality and injustice uh, that have been a part of our national story for a long time. And so we're reeling, and some of us are still struggling to process everything that we're feeling and thinking through all of this. So where do we turn for help and hope in a time like this? Where do we go? I mean, we feel like someone should do something, and on the one hand, I'm tempted to try to do something myself, uh, and that's not without value. Um, But where do we turn? And it's easy to say we turn to God, but let's really unpack what that means and what the implications of that are for us. In Psalm 146, if you look at verses 3 to 4, I'm sorry, 3 to 5, it reads this. Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There's no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth, and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. I think these verses are pretty clear where not to turn. It's tempting to expect a strong leader to rise up and create hope for us to save us from a situation that's terrible. But this psalm reveals for us that the reason we can't place our hope in earthly leaders is because their changes won't last because they don't last. And as soon as they die, they die. And the psalmist reminds us that we should put our hope in God because He outlives and He outpowers every other person to whom we are tempted turn for help and hope when things are really, really bad. 
There's no question who does the heavy lifting in the psalm. God is mentioned 14 times, and in 10 of those instances, it's his personal name. In other words, everything good that happens in this psalm to restore hope to people, to bring justice, to bring relief, every good thing that happens in this psalm happens because of what God does, not because of what humanity does. That doesn't mean that what we or our leaders do is irrelevant, that we should sit by and wait for God and do nothing. It certainly doesn't mean that at all. I think we should be doing a great deal of things, and I'll talk about that at the end of the message. There are so many things we can and should do, but we do those things like I talked about last Sunday in faith, in obedience, because God has asked us to have a response. But our confidence, our hope, our, our deepest trust is not placed on what we do. We are not the difference for the world. We are not the answer. God is the answer, and He will give that answer and apply it to the world very often through us. But apart from God, we will always, each of us, only remain a part of the problem. The biblical concept of justice is rooted in the equality of every human being. You cannot separate those ideas. What does it mean that I should treat another human being fairly or justly? It's built on the assumption, the basic idea, that every single human being is made equal, is equal. And not everybody believes we are made. Some people believe we just happen to be. But the heart of true justice is the equality of all human beings. That is not a constitutional or political principle. It's rooted in Scripture because the Bible reveals to us that every single one of us was made by God and He breathed into us or He stamped upon each one of us His own image. That's what makes us equal, is that we are all image bearers of the God that we love and worship, who has made us and given to each of us dignity and worth and value and beauty that bears His imprint. You know, we have four kids and they could not be more different from one another. But each one of them is an image bearer of Jeannie and myself. They bear our image and they have our love. Despite their differences, I can't say to you that one of them or the other is any more or any less my child. They are all my children. They all bear my image. Could it be any less for God who has made each of us? When you look at verse 7, it says that he gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. You know, the Bible closely links the ideas of righteousness and justice. In fact, you could argue that righteousness is the application of justice. It's treating other people justly as our equals because we recognize that we share the same Father and that He has given each of us His image and His imprint. So righteousness is treating others this way with justice. And that's why the opposite of justice is oppression. There's a powerful video. I sent a link out to you this morning via Facebook on our Harvest Facebook group. And I'll also embed the link in the recap email I'm going to send out um, on Sunday afternoon. 
But I want you to watch this video. It's put together by our friends at the, Gospel, at the Bible Project, and it's about the biblical concept of righteousness and justice. And I think they, they teach it so much better than I could. It's a really powerful video. It's about six minutes. I think you should invest six minutes of your life watching it. I don't think you're going to regret it. And they, they just say these things better than I could. So please, I defer to that for a fuller development of the biblical concept of justice and righteousness. One of the marks of oppression is that it takes advantage of or it elevates my position at the expense of another. This could be active oppression where I'm doing the pushing down or suppressing because it gives me some advantage. Now, I often think about a person who is drowning and someone tries to rescue them and they use that person as a flotation device. They push you down under the water because they're desperate for air. Now, if people do that during drowning, it's understandable. They, they are not in their right mind. But there are people who do that even when they're not drowning. They just see a room for advantage and they press someone else down. And as that Bible Project video reveals, it's much easier to take advantage of someone if they're weaker. But maybe that's not the kind of injustice or oppression that most of us are guilty of. It's possible it is, but um, there's also a passive injustice or oppression where we ignore or turn a blind eye to what's happening because we're very comfortable where we are. It doesn't affect us directly. And so in our place of comfort, we can afford to, or at least we think we can, to turn a blind eye and ignore the plight of others. And maybe it's also because we benefit from it. Maybe we ignore oppression because it brings prices down at the stores where we shop. Maybe we ignore oppression because it somehow takes or deflects the attention from us. And as long as no one's paying attention to us and paying attention to those people, we're going to be okay. Oppression is everywhere, and I believe the Bible teaches us that injustice is not just something that a few people do. Every one of us, at some point in our lives, is guilty of some kind of injustice or another towards our fellow man. And so justice, the call of God for righteousness and justice, is a reversal of the situation of oppression. I want you to notice that hunger and imprisonment were listed right alongside with oppression almost in the same breath. And that's because hunger and oppression, or I'm sorry, hunger and imprisonment are so often the direct results of oppression. When a, an entire nation or a system or a process so oppresses one person or one group of people, the likely result is that that person has less resources, goes hungry, and is more likely to be punished disproportionately for the things that they do, or to have a, a life circumstance that drives them more towards a likelihood of that kind of activity. The federal government defines the poverty threshold as a household income of less than $20,212. That's for a man and a woman and one child. In 2018, 22% of African Americans in the United States lived below this poverty threshold. In our state, it was even higher. It was 24%. And I want you to think about that and let that number sink in. One out of every four black Illinoisans lives below the poverty line. One source reports 
that 9% of black Americans live in what they call deep poverty, which is less than 50% of the household income for poverty threshold. That's less than $10,000 a year, and one out of 10 Americans who are African American live below that line. The charity Bread for the World reports that African Americans are twice as likely as whites to face low food security. The disparity is even more pronounced when you look at incarceration numbers. African American men are over six times more likely to be imprisoned than whites. Now, I'm not making a political statement here, but it has political implications for sure. But I'm a pastor and I'm not a politician. I'm not here to talk about um, political reforms or which party or which candidate. What I'm here to say is that, yes, it's true, individual choices have something to do with those situations and those numbers. I'm not going to say that it has nothing to do with it. But unless we hold to a belief that one people group is just somehow inherently inferior, more prone to these, um, these kinds of situations than others, which, by the way, is a view that is impossible to reconcile with Scripture and with any kind of Christian faith. It's impossible to hold to the belief that one people group is made inherently inferior to another because that puts the lie to what God says, that every one of us bears His image. We were all created, despite our superficial differences, in the image of God, and He breathes into each of us dignity and worth and value. We cannot hold to such a view and still say that our Christianity is a biblical Christianity. So if we cannot reconcile these statistics with an idea that that's just because that group is like this, then while individual choices play a part in the story of each life, those numbers as an entire society tell a story beyond individual action. It tells a story that indicts an entire society and unjust systems and structures that we live with, that we accept but we should not. It's easy to think about justice as an idea or a concept, but justice is presented again and again to us in Scripture as an action word. It's not a verb, it's a noun, but the way it's presented, there's always the implication that justice is not something we feel, it's something that is done or given. It is produced in the world through the action of God and the people who represent God. There's two forms of justice, if you think about it. Uh, one is retribution. And the video that I referenced earlier, this, it, it really develops as well. But retribution, justice as retribution, is about um, imposing consequences for those who do wrong. It's giving people what they deserve because their actions produce this outcome. But there's a second kind of justice, and that's restorative justice or restoration. And that is caring for the people who have been wronged, of leveling the playing field, of making things equal so that each person has an opportunity to live a different kind of life. Both are valid and biblical forms of justice. And I think it's interesting that depending on what your life situation is like or the degree to which you live with a sense of privilege and comfort, you're more likely 
to think about justice as one of those two forms or not. I find that when you occupy a place of privilege and comfort and security, you think more often about retributive justice. You think about people who should take responsibility for what they do and get what they deserve. Proportional consequence for actions. That's the kind of justice that people who are comfortable and secure and privileged often think about. But when you're on the other side of that equation, and when you're part of a group that is laboring like Sisyphus against unjust, frustrating, unlevel playing fields again and again and again, and you feel like no one is there to help you, everything is set against you, then you think a lot more about restorative justice. For you, the word justice means somebody make this fair. Somebody make this right. I'm not going to say that one of those is more biblical inherently, but the occurrences of justice in Scripture by far are heavier towards restorative justice than retribution. It's right for us to call wrongdoers to account. I'm not saying we shouldn't. And it's right for people who make choices regardless of their circumstance to understand that there's going to be a societal consequence for what they've done. But God puts a much greater emphasis on our call to practice justice, not as retribution, but as restoration. And that's the level of justice that most of us who are not authority figures or in the government or in law enforcement can practice every day. Look at Micah 6.8. The prophet Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but listen, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I love the way that's phrased, do justice. Not feel justice, agree with justice, cry out for justice, but do justice. And he's speaking to the average person on behalf of God. Do you think he's talking about retribution or restoration there? Well, the clue is given in the other words that that occupy the command, to love kindness and to walk humbly, which means remember that apart from God, there's no inherent reason for me to feel pride about myself over against another person. We're called by God to do justice. And Jeremiah 22.3 adds another dimension to this. Listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. The prophet Jeremiah is reminding us that to do justice is more than just punishing the oppressor. It is to deliver the oppressed from their unjust situation and to commit ourselves not to act unjustly ourselves. Whether it's active injustice or passive injustice, just turning a blind eye, he he says that to do justice is not just to punish the wrongdoer, but to elevate the oppressed and to make sure we are not contributing in any way to oppression ourselves. So what should our response be to all this? If God presents justice not as a sentiment or an ideal, but as a way of life, as an active response to our faith and the acknowledgement that God has made us all equal in His sight, 
What can we do in response? I want to offer you some things, some practical responses, because I feel it just like you do. We can't just sit around. We've got to have a response to God and to the nation's current situation. The first of these is simple. It's wake up. Wake up. Matthew 23, 23 um, convicts me more than it convicts you because I am a church leader. And I've got to think about the kind of church culture and priorities and values by which we've led harvest. Listen to what Jesus says. Speaking to the Pharisees, he says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. I take that as a loving but firm rebuke from Jesus to me as a church leader, but I hope you will receive it from him as well, that we should prioritize in our faith those things that are most important to the heart of God. And we should prioritize justice, not when some scandalous act of injustice breaks in the news, but we should prioritize justice as the posture of our life, as the heartbeat of our life, because justice is fundamental to the practice and the pursuit of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith in this world. And if it's an essential expression of our faith, then as American Christians, our pursuit of justice, our prioritization of justice, must include racial justice. And in our country, because of what the numbers show us, that fight for racial equality and justice must have a focus on the African-American community right now. What does it mean to wake up? Well, first, like Jesus says, it, it is to prioritize the right things, but I also think we need to wake up to the role that race plays in our own sense of identity. Have you reflected on your own sense of how much does race form who you see yourself as? I know that race often forms a big part of how we see other people, but what about you? How much do you own your own racial heritage and identity? And can you ask God in reflection to expose in you any unjust and unrighteous racial attitudes and beliefs? You can also wake up by learning everything you can. I have just been drowning this week, soaking myself in articles and books and videos, wanting to learn what I have been blind to. I also think we can learn a great deal by befriending people of other races, and not in tokenism, not just to go, well, tell me what I'm missing, but to really go with the posture of a learner and not a lecturer. Here's one of the things that blocks true transformation in relationships, is that we so focus on whether we're going to agree with a person or not, we don't even seek to understand where they're coming from. To understand a person doesn't mean you have to agree with their conclusions or their beliefs. But love cannot be practiced between people without us fighting to understand what makes the other person believe and act as they do. I want you to consider the example of a man named Daryl Davis. He is a pretty um, accomplished musician, 
He's toured with some of the greats. But at age 10, as a Boy Scout in a parade, he had an experience, a racist experience, an attack on him that as a little boy, and it happened in Naperville, Illinois, by the way, um, he couldn't understand why people were throwing rocks at him. It just, it, it, it blew his mind. And so he asked a question in his mind as a 10-year-old that has, had haunted him all his life. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? As an adult, he made this weird decision, very controversial, to start attending KKK rallies, trying to understand what makes these people tick. Why do they hate me when they don't even know me? For 30 years, he attended as many Klan rallies as he could, and he didn't just go there to learn and listen. He also went there to have real dialogue. He went respectfully, but he went courageously and forcefully as well. He stood up for himself. And over the course of those 30 years, he befriended a man named Roger Kelly, who's pictured in the second photograph. And Roger Kelly was the grand wizard of Maryland's chapter of the KKK. And over the 30 years, they developed such a genuine relationship of mutual trust and respect that while they could not agree on many things, they became friends, and it really messed Roger Kelly up. Over the course of those 30 years, Daryl Davis succeeded in convincing 200 Klansmen to leave the KKK, and one of those ultimately was Roger Kelly. He asked Daryl Davis to become the godfather to his daughter, which is a really weird thing. Now, that may not be a template for how we as a collective, as a nation, can act as a group. That's the long game. But I think it's a beautiful template for the individual actions we can take to seek understanding rather than to be put off by others that we cannot agree with. I don't think we need to end up where they end up or agree with what they believe, but we need to have a true awakening about race. Second thing we can do in response is to speak up. Proverbs 31, 8-9 says this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. If you have a voice or a platform, and I think every single one of us does today, God calls us to speak up. He calls us to speak up for those whose voice is weaker than ours, and I'm not saying that because we're better. I'm saying that because our situation affords us a bigger platform, a louder voice. For some people, their voice was taken away. So we've got to add our voices to their voices and speak. Silence is like the darkness that lets the fungus of injustice and oppression keep growing. The longer we stay silent, the more it's free to spread. Speaking up in public is very, very important. It's more important now than it ever has been. But I also want to tell you that speaking up is not just about hashtag activism or getting on a bullhorn or holding up a sign. Those are important. I'm not in any way downplaying those. But there's also another powerful way to speak up by speaking in to the life of someone who's feeling the full weight of all of this. I read a heartwarming story this past week about NFL wide receiver Zay Jones. 
He said that he was shopping at a local home goods store, and, you know, everybody's socially distancing, wearing masks. And an elderly white woman approached him. He didn't know who she was, but she said to him, you know, I'm from Minnesota originally, and I just want to tell you that you matter to me. And he was so moved by this that despite social distancing, he asked her, can I please give you a hug? And she just folded into his arms. And that simple act of human affirmation and kindness, which, by the way, was a really big risk for her. How how do you know how someone's going to react to a statement like that? And yet she took the risk and spoke from her heart just to say, I see you and you matter. I think we should be shouting things like, Black Lives Matter. But I also think that we should be telling our African-American brothers and sisters, face-to-face, you matter to me. I think that's important. And it brought such healing and a dimension of humanity to this national chaos for this one well-known man. Maybe you find that you don't actually have a lot of relationships with people outside of your own ethnic group. And if that is the case, that is one resolution I think we can make, is that we will form genuine friendships with others. My time is almost up here, so I've got to end. So let me give you a last response. And this is the one that I hope I will start and you will finish in the breakout rooms to come. And that is to rise up. Rise up. James 2, 15 to 17 says this. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. What James is reminding us is words can be powerful things for good. But words are not enough. Our commitment to justice should always go beyond words into the realm of action. You know, for almost 15 years now, we've been partnering with our ministry friends at GRIP. And they are right there at the front lines of these issues of um, unjust social structures and systems. They are at the front lines of ministering to the most at-risk demographic right now in our country. And it's hard work. It's messy work. And we are, for the last 15 years, their single greatest church partner. Over the course of those many years, we have contributed about a quarter of a million dollars to their ministry. And that's a significant partnership, and they are grateful for it. And we have formed such a good relationship between our team and their team. But here's the thing that I'm noticing. In the early years, we had a fair number of our people who are actually boots on the ground, serving alongside with their ministry, touching the lives of those we're trying to help. But in recent years, that number has dwindled. And I just thought to myself, in spite of the important financial contribution we're making, what if we sent more than money? What if, like pictured here, we sent people one after another a small army of mentors and coaches and instructors to speak life and hope 
into these disenfranchised young people. To tell them that God has made them for more than the world has told them they are. To help them find a pathway to hope and a future. What if we did that as an act of response? And that's just one of so many practical responses that we can do to rise up, not just with our voices, but with our hands and our feet and our pocketbooks and with our whole lives to stand for justice because God stands for justice. In a moment, the praise team is going to lead us in a closing song called Lion and the Lamb. And I love this song because it shows us whether he does it through meekness or through the roar of a lion, it is God who fights our battles and he wins because of who he is. Everything we do is our response to him. It is our faithfulness, our obedience. We should keep doing what we are called to do. But this last song reminds us that we are not the hope of the world. We are not the answer. God will use us, but God is our hope. He is the lion and the lamb. And in just a minute, we're going to be singing together over and over, Who can stop the Lord Almighty? What an important reminder that the God we worship is an unstoppable force. And because He cares about justice, justice is never going to be a lost cause. What part will you play? God is already calling us forward because He cares about this. What part will you play? Let's sing this song together, and then I'll be back later to deliver a benediction and then dismiss you into the breakout rooms. Join me to receive the benediction. Our hearts are hurting. We are a nation divided. We are confused and we're brokenhearted. We see problems of injustice and inequality so vast that it's tempting to give up hope. But as long as God lives and He cares about these things, it is worth it for us to hope as well. May the God of justice turn you and me and Harvest Community Church into those who stand and stand up for justice. May we be, through His hands, part of the solution and not part of the problem. May the Holy Spirit guide you individually and us together to do more, to be a part of God's answer to the brokenness of our world. And may God bring great healing for our African-American brothers and sisters who are just brokenhearted and reeling, sad and angry and fearful right now. May they know how many others stand with them because of the love of Jesus. May God grant you peace in a very unpeaceful world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.